so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Once again, I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders and happy to be connecting back up with you here on the America Out Loud Network. I thought maybe we could start today with a little talk about money, since that's something most of us like, right? I can't think of too many people don't like to see a check with their name on it or, you know, hear uh, hear the sound of some uh, crisp $100 bills being counted out for them. But I want to talk about real money. Yeah. Old school money. In fact, I'm going to do this. All right. Hang on a sec. I'm just seeing. No. Oh, I don't have it in my pocket. Okay. Well, I was going to drop a silver coin on the calendar and say, there you go. That's what real money sound like. sounds like. But apparently when I changed pants, I didn't transfer that. I carry that with me everywhere I go simply because I want to remind myself what real money is. The reason I wanted to bring this up today is because we recently passed a bit of a milestone. Not many people knew this about August 15th, but August 15th, 1971, 50 years ago, President Richard Nixon announced the U.S. government would cease honoring its pledge to pay gold to redeem the dollars held by foreign central banks. Now, I don't know when it stopped, you know, that, you know, you could go into your bank and hand over those paper dollar bills and say, I need gold for this. I, I know I have a couple of friends who have shown me silver certificates where you could take it and, you know, get $5 in silver if that's what you wanted. But I get the impression for the average citizen, yeah, gold was not an option. That may go back as far as, what, 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, I'm going to take away uh, the gold from, from the American people. But I think most of us have, have very seldom encountered real money in our lives. And I want to explain what I mean by real money here, because I mean, look, some people will just dismiss you when you, when you start talking gold and silver. Oh, you're a gold bug. You're one of them uh, precious metals people. And I'll grant you, you know, precious metals, uh, they, they have utility as a store of value. Most people recognize, you know, that when you drop a silver dollar or I mean, a silver ounce on the table compared to, say, you know, a, a silver dollar made after 1964, there's a very definite difference in the sound. The pure silver or 99% pure silver has a very definite ring to it. It's musical. Whereas the uh, coins that most of us carry around, quarters, 50-cent pieces, and so forth, yeah, I mean, they're pretty, but they're not really made of anything precious. And, and it shows. But you can't eat them, right? So you could be sitting on bags and bags of gold coins and silver coins, but if you're starving to death, that really doesn't help. In fact, they are somewhat uh, difficult to use just because, you know, at the high price right now, going for the high spot price for, for gold, 
it's artificially high in the sense that, you know, inflation has, has eaten up a lot of purchasing power of the dollar, but, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that's easily divisible. You wouldn't want to plunk down a gold coin when you were just trying to get, you know, a, a sandwich or a loaf of bread or something like that. Now, several gold coins? I don't know. Maybe you could get yourself a cabin or a car or, I don't know, a bride, depending on what, you know, what part of the hills you're, you're traipsing through. But the bottom line is, some big changes came down about how we view money. And this is, this is where most of my attachment to the idea of, you know what, precious metals in many ways still make sense. And that is that there is something tangible, something that is valuable, tangible, sought after, divisible, fungible, that people could use to represent that store of value. Most of what you and I call money, including those uh, nice colored pieces of paper sitting in our wallets, well, let's just say that uh, they only have value because we believe that they have value. And if we ever were to stop believing in the value of those pieces of paper, well, then they would go back to being, you know, just pretty printed pieces of paper. And you'd probably wipe your nose with it if you had to, but, you know, other than that, it's, it's probably not going to serve much purpose. And scarier still is the idea of electronic currency, which exists only in the form of electrons or maybe in the form of a notation on somebody's ledger, but isn't actually physically represented by some tangible object. Now, I understand the common objections. I've, I've actually said to myself, well, you know, how many people could afford to have 100,000 silver dollars or half a million in silver dollars sitting around for their retirement? That's a good point. At the same time, if it's something that you can't put your hands on, if it's something that remains intangible, is it really yours? And I know the worst case scenario would be, okay, so what if there was an extended power outage, the grid is down maybe for months on end? How do people access the money in their bank accounts? I don't know. It seems like the simple answer is, well, they don't. So I am a believer in in hedging your bets. Maybe you have some precious metals. You have you know other precious metals, including lead, brass, and copper. I think that uh, those things hold value and will have utility, and they're definitely sought after. And looking at the prices, uh, even today, online, um, they're, they're a pretty good store of value. I think a person who really wanted a box of 22 shells would be willing to pay a fair amount of money for a box of 22 shells, if they're difficult to find. I want to share with you an article from James Bovard. This was printed up on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. Nixon's gold treachery made me a cynic. And I think Jim was paying attention. I think he actually, he sees this pretty clearly. I was a kid when Nixon announced that the government would no longer honor its pledge to pay gold to redeem the dollars held by foreign central banks. Yeah. August 15th, 1971, I was just shy of my sixth birthday. So that was not something that I really cared about. But Bovard says Nixon declared he was taking action necessary to defend the dollar against speculators. But there was no way to defend the dollar against politicians. So Nixon touted his default as therapy for his tormented fellow citizens, promising it would help snap up or snap out of the self-doubt, the self-disparagement that saps our energy and erodes our confidence in ourselves. And he wrapped his decree with lofty political rhetoric, appealing to the nation's greatest ideals, promising a new prosperity that befits a great people. 
and the dollar thus became a fiat currency, says James Bovart, something which possessed value solely because politicians said so. Nixon spurred the Federal Reserve to create an artificial boom to boost his his re-election campaign and to suppress the damage from a flood of new money. He imposed wage and price controls, making it a crime to raise prices without government permission. Now, James Bovard says at that time, he was working in a peach orchard in rural Virginia for 10 hours a day, making a buck 40 an hour and all the peach fuzz he could take home on his arms and neck. Nixon's wage controls doomed any chance he had of getting that raise to a buck 45 an hour. But he says, no loss. I was leaving that job soon to go back to high school. I was 15 at the time and an avid coin collector. I soaked up the rage at the reckless federal policies that permeated coin news and other numismatic publications. Government a scoundrel was the theme of many editorials and articles that he read in those periodicals in the following months and years. Now, at 15, he says, I had no savvy on economics, but my gut sense told me something was profoundly amiss. Nixon's decree spurred my reading and researching. So he says Nixon's gold default was also a landmark for America's rising economic and political illiteracy. In the era of this nation's birth, currency was often recognized as a character issue, specifically the contemptible character of politicians. In fact, he says shortly before the 1787 Constitutional Convention, George Washington warned that unsecured paper money will ruin commerce, oppress the honest, and open the door to every species of fraud and injustice. The Coinage Act of 1792 established gold and silver as the foundation for the nation's currency and authorized a death penalty for anyone who debased the nation's gold or silver coins. Now, unfortunately, politicians later exempted themselves from penalties for debasing the currency. In 1933, the U.S. had the largest gold reserves of any nation in the world, but fear of devaluation spurred a panic, which President Franklin Roosevelt exploited to seize people's gold. FDR denounced anyone who refused to turn in their gold as a hoarder, and any citizen caught with more than $100 in gold coins faced 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Now, just to put this into perspective... That penalty wasn't as harsh as the Soviet Union's death penalty for anyone caught hoarding wheat from a collective farm. But it's on the same road towards absolute control. James Bovard writes, FDR asserted that banning private ownership of gold was necessary to give government what he called freedom of action, which he quickly exploited by devaluing the dollar by 59% with the decree raising the value of gold from $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce. Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau hailed the gold policy as part of the administration's plans for a restoration of public confidence. But the de facto default on government debts set the precedent for boundless federal arbitrariness for the rest of the decade. FDR tried every trick to drive up prices, foolishly confident that a mere change in numerical prices would spawn prosperity. The resulting inflation was invoked in the early 1940s to help justify imposing payroll tax withholding. In the mid-1960s, the dollar was under pressure from perennial federal deficit spending, and President Lyndon Johnson responded by eliminating all the silver in new dimes and quarters. After severing the dollar's link to silver, 
LBG, LBJ rather demanded that the Federal Reserve pump up the economy. He even summoned Fed Chairman William McChesney Martin to his Texas ranch and physically beat him. He slammed him against the wall and said, Martin, my boys are dying in Vietnam and you won't print the money I need. That's according to Dallas Federal Reserve President Richard Fisher. Well, since LBJ didn't murder Martin at his ranch, the media could continue to portray the Federal Reserve as independent of political control. The Fed accommodated LBJ sufficiently that the inflation rate more than tripled between 1964 and 1968, rising from 1.3 to 4.3%. And the rising inflation set the scene for Nixon's gold repudiation. James Bovard says FDR's prohibition on private gold ownership contained a loophole for rare coins with numismatic value. Luckily, the feds did not vigorously police that exemption. So he says in his case, by 1973, he was buying Mexican and French gold pieces to save and to sell to high school classmates and others. Bovard says, after I got laid off from a construction job in the summer of 1974, I saw it as a sign from God, or at least from the market, that I should buy more gold. I liquidated most of my coin collection and put all my available cash into gold and also took out a consumer finance loan at 18% to purchase even more. The interest rate was the gauge of my blind confidence. I'd been, follow- I'd been closely following gold prices and was convinced a price spike was coming. Nixon's resignation in August did wonders for the price of gold. Now he says, I didn't get rich but I made enough to help cover my costs for sporadically attending Virginia Tech with some money left over to pay for my first literary strikeouts. Though Nixon assured the nation in 1971 that the effect of this action will be to stabilize the dollar, the Nixon shock was followed by a decade of one of the worst inflations of American history and the most stagnant economy since the Great Depression. The price of gold rose to $800 from $35, as Lewis Lerman noted. Americans have suffered 570% inflation since Nixon stabilized the dollar. Bovard says Nixon's gold decree and other policies helped him to recognize that politicians are far more perfidious than the media portrays. If the government would intentionally destroy the value of the currency, he says, I wondered what else it was undermining. The Watergate scandal provided further evidence of politician as synonym for damn rascal. The dissolution of the Vietnam War clinched the case as Americans learned how presidents had conned the nation into a pointless Asian bloodbath. Gas shortages and gas lines beginning in late 1973 confirmed that any cadre of the best and brightest in Washington was an optical illusion. Now, 50 years after Nixon's betrayal, America is again facing rapidly increasing inflation. The Biden administration is embracing almost boundless deficit spending in its quest to throw unrestricted free money at any non-millionaire who might vote for Democratic candidates. Most of the fawning media coverage on Biden policies is as economically illiterate as the cheerleaders for Nixon's chicanery long ago. If the government continues on this path, James Bovard says, it is only a question of time until fresh debacles result. But from the economic wreckage, a new generation of cynics may arise who do a far better job of putting politicians back on a leash. And that's it right there. That is what's needed. Politicians back on a leash. And you know what? With honest money, that's what you get. 
So, yeah, sounds like, well, are you advocating for the abolition of the Federal Reserve? Yeah, actually, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I know it does. It has some useful purposes, but mostly it gives politicians essentially an endless checkbook from which they can spend and spend and spend. I'm just of the opinion that we would be wise not to let them do so. Shifting gears. If you've been following the news, you've probably heard a little bit about uh, what's been going on in Afghanistan. It's uh, heart-wrenching, to put it uh, mildly. And yet it, uh, it also was avoidable. I know the blame game's going on, so I'm, I'm not going to engage in the blame game so much. But the bottom line is, strange days are ahead. Now, I've got a great article here from James Howard Kunstler. This is uh, published on lewrockwell.com. And he starts with a quote from Sean Davis, who's editor of The Federalist, talking about some of the things going on at the Kabul airport in the last few days. Sean Davis says, if American Airlines were in charge, they would have blamed all the cancellations on the weather and then given everyone's checked luggage to the Taliban. Yeah, probably true. James Howard Kunstler says, I guess we had to find out the hard way that Afghanistan is not like Nebraska. Let others be cruel about it. There's plenty of that right now elsewhere. But he says the last ostensible hegemon who tried occupying the place before us was the Soviet Union, which discovered painfully that Afghanistan was not much like its uh, Kemerovo Oblast either. And shortly after it withdrew its troops in 1989, the Soviet Union commenced to collapse, which prompts one to wonder how much is the USA of 2021 like the Soviet Union of those years? Now, don't have a knee-jerk reaction to that question, but listen to his answer. He says, well, we've become an ossified administrative nomenclature of the of deep state flunkies, just like the Soviets were, and lately we're just as lawless as they used to be, constitution-wise. In other words, the abolition of private property rights via the CDC's rent moratorium, the prolonged jailing and solitary confinement of January 6th political prisoners, the introduction of internal passports, And, of course, the USA is running on fumes economically, just like the Soviets were. Our dominant party leadership has aged into an embarrassing gerontocracy. Is it our turn to collapse? He answers, well, it kind of looks like it. The days ahead are liable to be a rough ride. Surely China has taken a measure of our woke military and is weighing the seizure of Taiwan in our moment of signal weakness. No more computer chips for you, Uncle Sam. Do we come to Taiwan's defense with guns blazing or perhaps nukes? And what if that doesn't work out so well? Kunstler says, I'll tell you what, a major geopolitical reordering of things, leaving us where? Unable to enforce our will around the world, as has been the case for 80 years. Floundering, friendless, broke, broken. Now, of course, the domestic situation in our land has not been so fraught and overwrought since 1861. Everything is politicized which is to say, used as a truncheon to beat up adversaries, and let's face it, mostly in the sense of left against right. This is especially true for the COVID-19 soap opera, which more and more pits the sanctimoniously vaccinated progressives against the recalcitrant conservative no-vax free-choicers. That is, coercive government trying to force supposedly free citizens to accept a pretty dubious experimental medical treatment. And he asks, since when did the American left become so pro-tyranny? And how did that happen? 
He says, I have friends and relatives, I'm sure you do too, who knocked themselves out in the 1960s protesting against the war, the government, the FBI and CIA, and who fought in the streets for free speech and raged against official propaganda. Today, they can't get enough of coercing, punishing, brainwashing, and canceling their fellow citizens. They're going so far as to engineer their vicious narrative to brand their opponents as domestic terrorists. Think that's going to work? He says, I doubt it. And the fall of Afghanistan is sure to spark a resentful reaction among the many ex-soldiers who paid a heavy price pulling tours of duty in that hapless venture over 20 years. There's a lot of them out there in Red America, and they were already pissed off about the pernicious nonsense being jammed down their throats by the minions of wokesterism. The race and gender hustles, the off-the-charts rise of violent crime, the wide-open border, the offshoring of jobs, the COVID lockdowns and wrecking of small businesses, the modern money theory experiment of launching inflation, and the new pussification of armed forces they've served and suffered in. They've laid rather low through years of this, just watching the scene in wonder and nausea, but now you may see them turn more active. And consider, they've been well-trained in weaponry and tactics. He says unsettling discoveries are in the offing going forward. The Wall Street Journal lately detected signs of life in the John Durham investigation, reporting that matters have gone to a grand jury. Now that means crimes are being prosecuted. We may soon become reacquainted with names that almost slip down the memory hole, the likes of Bruce Orr, Glenn Simpson, Andrew McCabe, Rod Rosenstein, Peter Strzok. Who else? This may also lead to a catastrophic discrediting of the mainstream media who were fully in on the Russiagate con, to the degree that some companies end up utterly wrecked and many careers washed up. Now, he says hard information about what actually went down in the 2020 election is also coming out, and not to the credit of the ruling regime that purportedly triumphed in that contest. Some of that info may redound to the issue of China's involvement in our affairs and beyond mere election meddling to the wholesale buying off of the U.S. political class. He says the pathetic thing is we already know several very prominent figures on the take from China, including Eric Swalwell, Dianne Feinstein, and most conspicuously, Hunter Biden and family. But the ranks of the known to be bought off could swell dramatically. And finally, there's the fate of President Joe Biden. As Kabul falls, he remains in his Camp David gopher hole. Actually, he did come out uh, recently to make a statement, but it was, you know, word salad. Observers conjecture, well, he's had a few bad days lately, meaning he's not presentable. But James Howard Kunstler says there's a rising clamor, even among his own partisans, for him to come out and say something, anything, for God's sake. Just do more than pretend to be the leader of the free world. So it could be curtains for old white Joe, like resignation time. Never before has a U.S. president faced such a daunting loss of legitimacy and hardly just on account of Afghanistan. And then he says, consider who's next in line for that position. What, did you shudder? His point is, sometimes, Vlad Lenin observed, events take decades. And sometimes years happen in weeks. This looks like one of those times for the USA. Heads will be spinning like the little girls in The Exorcist releasing a pea soup spewage of shocking revelation. The old narratives will fall apart right before our eyes. Minds will have to get it right. So he says, prepare for a lot of strange days rolling out. Now, hopefully that doesn't sound like, man, you just listed off everything that was bad news that could possibly be listed. Because that's not my goal here. 
I don't share that with you so that uh, you can realize just how hopeless and how, you know, horrible things are. It's more like, yeah, when, when we talk about strange days ahead, we're all going to have to get used to the idea that what we thought was going to be is going to be different. And if there was a time to start working on building that mental resilience to roll with the punches and still hold to your principles, still be the person who can be counted on to shine a light into the dark, this is the time to do that. Look, I feel it too. The difficulty level has been dialed up to 11. (laughs) It's not fun. Nobody I know is having a great time anticipating where this is taking us. But we are disciples of liberty, are we not? We are the people who should be counted on to make that stand. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell the leading innovator of nutritional supplements for cell health. Most vitamins haven't been upgraded since the 1930s. Healthy Cell uses a innovative technology, which is a gel pack that provides a better absorbed vitamins and nutrients where they're needed the most. I just took a Healthy Cell today before I went out and exercised, and I can tell you I am working hard for America Out Loud radio as we speak. And tonight, I am looking for good REM sleep. And I can tell you, I am tired and I want to fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deeply and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell. Um, You're going to use the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. This is the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, and get a 20% off for your first order of any product. I use Healthy Cell and I'm really glad that I've been introduced to it. So I recommend it for you. Again, go to HealthyCell.com and use the OutLoud uh, code, promotional code, for a 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders, here on the America Out Loud Network. Thanks for being part of this audience. Thanks for being part of the people who care enough to examine another point of view, to maybe look at things in a little greater depth, and and maybe, just maybe, in the bottom of your heart, wonder, hey, what can I do about this? 
I don't have all the answers, but I have access to some great sources of information, if nothing else, to provide some perspective. And hopefully at the end of the day, you're more sure of who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against. You know, it seems like we're, we're walking this interesting tightrope between being watchmen, if you will. Is that sexist to say that? Watchmen, watch persons. <laughs> we're, we're trying to safeguard liberty for the generations that follow us. And it should be pretty obvious by now. It's not a self-perpetuating thing. It's not like, okay, the founding generation secured our liberty when they, uh, you know, broke away from the crown and established this country and established the Constitution. We'd like to think that it was something that, you know, they could just basically set on autopilot and away it would go. And in perpetuity, all the generations that followed would enjoy the blessings of liberty, as, as the founders put it. But no, the ink wasn't even dry on the Constitution before there were people who were doing things that tested that. And I don't mean to shake your faith in the founding generation, but George Washington was among the first. Yeah, the Whiskey Rebellion. Really? Sending federal troops into, you know, the in, into um, Pennsylvania to put down this uh, rebellion on the part of uh, the the farmers who didn't want to pay an extra tax on whiskey. Thankfully, that thing didn't go too far. But, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts under President John Adams, yeah, that was that was pretty bad stuff, too. My point is not to, to tell yourself, see, the Constitution doesn't work. It's just that constant vigilance is required. Every generation, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, we're never more than one generation away from losing our liberty. And I think it's contingent on the people who, who are still in existence, who still remember and treasure what that is have a duty to uphold it. And man, do we have our work cut out for us now. I mean, if you look at what's going on right now, in fact, I, I want to, I, I hate to beat the drum on COVID again, but this is probably the most focused attack on liberty in a number of generations. I don't know if we've seen anything quite like this in the history of the country. Maybe you go back to some of the things that were taking place during the war between the states. Maybe you'd see some, some parallels. But as far as just government saying, nope, we're in control here, we're going to control all this, and, and again, I'm looking at the, the end result, we are fast approaching a point where you may not work, you may not travel, you may not, uh, you may not go to any establishment, you can't you know, purchase, engage in commerce, unless you are doing what uh, this or that bureaucrat says. Most of the bureaucrats, by the way, not even elected, they're just bureaucrats. But they got government power backing what they're doing. Businesses are falling in line. I mean, the, the parallels between the former Soviet Union and the United States right now are pretty spooky. At least for people who are paying attention. And I think underlying it all is this, this illusion that government can control COVID. There was a great article from a website called Stark Realities. Brian McGlinchey is the author. It's called Lockdowns, Masks, and the Illusion of Government Control Over COVID. I thought you might like this because it really is an illusion. Viruses don't care about policy. They don't care what this or that politician is saying. They don't care. Viruses, well, they do what viruses do. They spread throughout a population until such time as herd immunity is reached, at which point the virus is pretty much done. But they don't care. That a politician, I'm going to put these words on paper and that's going to solve this. So the virus has to behave. It doesn't. 
And the surest way that you can know this, um, Tom Woods has done a marvelous job of documenting this. If you take charts which show the number of cases in a given area, let's say, you know, in uh, Los Angeles or in Louisiana or, you know, San Francisco or wherever, if you follow the charts and you say, okay, show me where mask mandates were implemented, guaranteed every time the person who points to this low point, I think they were implemented just before this. Nope. Doesn't work that way. And even in places that didn't implement mask mandates, you see the chart tracks almost exactly the same. It's like the virus spreads more at certain times and spreads less at other times, irrespective of whether there is a mask mandate or not. Okay, maybe I'll come back to that in a minute. I want you to hear what uh, Brian McClinchy has to say. He says, in the early 11th century, King Canute, while at the peak of his power, set out to demonstrate to his fawning courtiers, courtiers the limited power of royal edicts. After having his throne placed by the sea's edge, he sat down and commanded the tide to stop rising. And when the water began washing over his feet, he declared, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. Well, nearly a thousand years later, facing a different force of nature, COVID-19, an entire global generation of scientists, presidents, prime ministers, governors, mayors, public health officials, and citizens is being given the same lesson. However, where Knut's lesson sprang from his humility, this lesson springs from the hubris of the present-day ruling class and the credulity of the masses who place far too much faith in their ruler's power. And that lesson was uh, driven pointedly home on July 19th. That was Freedom Day in the United Kingdom, with government ending restrictions on social contact, allowing the reopening of remaining establishments such as nightclubs, and abandoning mask mandates. Two weeks before Freedom Day, as the Delta relentlessly pushed the UK's case count higher, 122 prominent scientists and doctors submitted a letter to The Lancet, that's the British Medical Journal, calling the planned easing of restrictions a dangerous and unethical experiment. On the eve of Freedom Day, the UK's daily case count was over 40,000. Imperial College London mathematical biologist Neil Ferguson told the BBC it was almost inevitable. The end of restrictions would prompt daily cases to soar to 100,000, perhaps even 200,000. Now, Mother Nature was about to deliver a harsh comeuppance to Ferguson and others who would have us believe government restrictions and mask mandates offer a potent defense against COVID contagion. Because right after those restrictions ended, cases promptly went into a two-week freefall. And by the way, there's a chart in the article that I'm looking at that, that clearly shows this is where they ended. And sure enough, those numbers drop. Now, in addition to fostering well-founded doubt about the benefits of lockdowns and face coverings, this turn of events should also cultivate healthy skepticism about the pronouncements of the public health establishment. Brian McClinchy says, hopefully Ferguson's particular humiliation will immunize officials, journalists, and citizens against trusting Imperial College London's COVID-19 models. Those models, which played a key role in enabling unprecedented draconian lockdowns around the world, have been wildly wrong again and again. For example, Imperial College London projected Sweden's relaxed approach to COVID-19 would leave nearly 100,000 Swedes dead by July 1st of 2020. The actual count? 5,700. 
And the United States has endured its own false alarms about what will happen when government-imposed restrictions are eased. Grim predictions and accusations of gubernatorial indifference to human life accompanied the ending of restrictions and mandates in states like Iowa, Texas, and Florida. And they proved as wrong as the ones made in the U.K. last month. Lacking Canute's humility and undaunted by, by contrary evidence, the great majority of officials, scientists, and pundits who favored coercive government measures have proven stubbornly incapable of entertaining the possibility that these interventions, which have boosted depression, suicide, alcohol abuse, drug overdoses, domestic violence, and undiagnosed cancer, aren't a net positive for public health after all. That resistance to contrary evidence extends to a great many everyday citizens whose unwavering support of lockdowns, business restrictions, remote schooling, and mask mandates is part of a politicized tribal identity. Now, exasperatingly, that tribe embraces trust science as a mantra, oblivious to the fact that the scientific method hinges on the reliable replication of results that supports one's theory something sorely lacking where lockdowns, masking, and other measures are concerned. Another great uh, chart here to to illustrate this. With a high rate of mask wearing in Japan, 96% mask compliance, 98% mask compliance, 97% mask compliance, and then boom, the case is still going off the charts in Japan. You know that's got to be causing a few questions, right? A few people have to be scratching their heads going, huh, why... Why didn't that go the way that we said that it would? Brian McGlinchey says the trust science crowd is oblivious to the fact that scientists are far from unanimous in supporting those government-imposed non-pharmaceutical interventions, those NPIs, and that highly credentialed scientists from esteemed institutions are among the most vigorous dissenters. The most prominent demonstration of, of dissent came last October with the Great Barrington Declaration led by professors from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, epidemiologists and public health scientists from all around the world expressed their grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health aspects of the prevailing COVID-19 policies. Now, did you realize that Great Barrington Declaration has now been signed by more than 58,000 medical and public health scientists and medical practitioners? Their numbers and their credentials don't guarantee that their views are correct. However, they do belie the presumption of some kind of scientific consensus behind coercive mitigation policies. McGinchy says, among the three original Stanford signatories to the declaration is a biophysics professor and Nobel Prize recipient, Michael Levitt, or Levitt, rather. He and a group of Stanford and international scholars have been analyzing the COVID-19 data since January 2020. Referring to the steep drop in cases after UK restrictions were eased, Levitt recently asked the Twitterverse, can anyone show clear correlation between NPI, again, non-pharmaceutical interventions, or other restrictions, and reduced COVID cases anywhere? He says, I keep trying and failing. We really know, we really need to know this to deal better with future pandemics. And Brian McGlinchey says, Levitt isn't the only reputable scientist who sees little, if any, correlation between government-imposed NPIs and COVID-19 trajectories. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, in a recent interview with the New York Times, said, We've ascribed far too much human authority over the virus. These surges have little to do with what humans do. 
And only recently with vaccines have we begun to have a real impact. We had record high cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in January, followed by a precipitous decline throughout February and into March. This does not reflect anything to do with human mitigation. This is the natural ebb and flow of the virus we've seen time and time again around the world. Interesting. In that vein, Brian McGlinchey says, those who exclusively attribute today's surging case counts in southern states to lagging vaccination rates and purported local mismanagement should note that the southern wave's timing roughly parallels the region's 2020 summer surge, which should prompt consideration that seasonality, alongside Delta's greater transmissibility among the, even among the vaccinated, may be the dominant driver. It is interesting, by the way, when you do look at the charts and you look at, well, what was happening last year at this time? Same kind of thing. Yeah, there's a spike. It wasn't the Delta variant, but again, it's the virus following a pattern that uh, that apparently you know goes with its ebb and flow. You also should keep in mind that while Florida is considered the new epicenter of the pandemic, the state's vaccination rate matches the national average. Kind of hard to blame it on the uh, so-called anti-vaxxers or the unvaccinated, right? And Oregon, despite an above-average vaccination rate, is experiencing its own sharp spike but has been spared the kind of contemptuous scorn that journalists and Democratic politicians heap on Republican-led Florida. Yeah, no bias at play here. Brian McGlinchey says, look, every non-pharmaceutical intervention deserves scrutiny. He says, over the course of the pandemic, some anti-COVID-19 measures have fallen out of favor in light of new findings and observations. For example, with the understanding that surface transmission of COVID-19 is extremely unlikely... Far fewer people are wiping groceries with Clorox. Now, perhaps because they're bolted into place, the nation's thicket of plexiglass dividers have actually shown more staying power, despite research indicating they may not only be futile, but could actually be making matters worse by thwarting ventilation. In March, the CDC withdrew its recommendation for barriers on school desks, but now has apparently stopped short of discouraging their broad use elsewhere. And though it's now socially acceptable to question the use of disinfectants and plexiglass, questioning masks can get you suspended from social media and tarred as a promoter of disinformation, even when you're citing peer-reviewed studies. Now, Brian McGlinchey says, however, with other widely embraced mitigation measures fading in light of new data, intellectually honest people should be equally open to the question of whether widespread face covering, particularly with anything other than an N95 mask, is worthwhile. That forbidden discussion is starting to creep into mainstream media. In a recent appearance on CNN, the University of Minnesota's Osterholm, a former COVID-19 advisor to President Biden, caused a stir by saying, we know that uh, many of the face cloth coverings that people wear are, are not very effective in reducing any of the virus movement in or out. That's because COVID-19 particles are astoundingly small. Hard as it is to imagine, the imperceptible gaps in surgical masks can be a thousand times the size of a viral particle. Gaps in cloth masks are larger than that. Osterholm has offered a highly relatable standard by which to judge a particular face covering and whether or not it serves as a meaningful barrier against particles that small. If you were in a room with somebody smoking, would you smell it in your device that you're using? See, that standard would not only eliminate cloth masks, but also surgical ones, too. Now, beyond the realities of nanoparticle science and the conclusions of previous studies, 
the case for masking is undermined by what we've observed during the pandemic. Sweden, for example, never widely embraced masking, and while its per capita COVID death count is well higher than neighboring Finland and Norway, it's the 15th lowest out of the 31 European Union countries and the UK. In other words, if face covering was such an essential, life-saving practice, Sweden wouldn't be found in the middle of the EU pack. They would be dead last. That said, using COVID-19 death counts alone to evaluate outcomes is problematic. Different testing protocols can also mean that an individual would be positive in one country and negative in another. Jurisdictions also differ in what exactly comprises a COVID-19 death. Was it a death from COVID or merely with COVID? More importantly, though, when we focus solely on COVID-19 deaths, we ignore the suicides, fatal overdoses, and other unintended consequences that result from the lockdowns themselves. And Brian McClinchy says that's why it's best to compare countries using excess all-cause mortality, total deaths beyond what's expected in a normal year. By that measure, lockdown and mask issuing Sweden had one of the best 2020 excess mortality rates in all of Europe, 23rd lowest out of all 30 countries. It again trailed Finland and Norway, but a variety of factors undermine the idea that they present a full-on apples-to-apples comparison. What's more, by some measures, Finland and Norway had even less stringent policies during the first several months of the pandemic. Then you've got the matter of the CDC following the TV pundits. Vinay Prasad is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and co-author of Ending Medical Reversal, Improving Outcomes, Saving Lives. Medical reversal is what happens when new data shows a commonly accepted practice is not helpful or is actually harmful. Decrying the lack of randomized trials backing many COVID-19 policies, Prasad recently wrote, when it comes to non-pharmacologic interventions, such as mandatory business closures, mask mandates, countless other interventions, rather, the shocking conclusion of the last 18 months is this. We have learned next to nothing. Referring to the CDC's decision to once again recommend universal indoor masking in areas of higher COVID-19 transmission, Prasad wrote, the CDC director calls this following the science, but it's not. It is following the TV pundits. While declaring his openness to the possibility that masking can be an effective public health intervention, Prasad says mandates should be driven by evidence and that the CDC isn't offering any. Prasad, who doesn't shy away from endorsing coercive government action when he thinks it's warranted, concludes, when the history books are written about the use of non-pharmacologic measures during this pandemic, we will look as prehistoric and barbaric and tribal as our ancestors during the plagues of the Middle Ages. He says what the books won't capture is how in the moment our experts were simply so sure of themselves. Wow. I mean, does that not... Does that not give you a pause to at least stop and say, okay, how much can I trust this? It's not like you're looking for reasons to diss on medicine or diss on doctors. I'm just looking for a reason to doubt. This is part of being a clear, independent thinker in a time of crisis. And boy, is that what we need right now. We need more clear and independent thinkers. Not people trying to find fault with everything that comes before them, but who are willing to ask the hard questions about what is being demanded of them. And we shouldn't have to apologize for asking those kind of questions. 
I don't want to sound all uppity here, but, you know, free men and women don't apologize for defending and claiming and using their God-given rights. I want to segue into another article that I would strongly recommend for your consideration. This is from Barry Brownstein, and this piece was published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website, AIER.org. Good medicine requires second opinions. The reason I share this is because there are doctors who have spoken out. There are doctors who are dissenters, but many of them are facing some pretty serious risk, including the possible loss of their medical licensure if they fail to toe the, uh, the line of whatever the accepted narrative is. And that's sad, because we need those dissenting voices. Barry Brownstein talks about uh, hiking on the rugged trails of Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and how a couple of hikers coming down the mountain called out in distress, What trail are we on? And he answered them, and he asked, where are you headed? They were hiking a section of the Appalachian Trail. He says, he explained that they made a wrong turn at the trail intersection about a third of a mile back up the trail. They were puzzled. What trail intersection? What sign? Realizing they had wandered off the trail, he says, he encouraged them to follow him to the intersection to rejoin the Appalachian Trail. Making faster progress than him, once again, he says they wandered off the trail. He called to them, and together as they made their way up the rugged slopes, he would give them updates on how far to the intersection. But his assurances weren't enough. And here came another party of hikers coming down the trail, and again the distressed hikers called out, Hey, what trail are we on? Now Barry Brownstein says, I wasn't insulted. It's often wise to seek a second opinion. Accidents and even deaths are not rare on the trails of Mount Washington. And his point is that in matters of health, it is especially wise to seek a second opinion. Nobel laureate in economics Daniel Kahneman is famous for explaining sim, or I'm sorry, systematic biases in decision making. His new book, Noise, written with Olivier Siboney and Cass Sunstein, brings to light the impact of noise on decisions. Now, they explain the random nature of noise. Some judgments are biased. They're systematically off target. Other judgments are noisy. As people who are expected to agree, people who are expected to agree end up at very different points around the target. So Barry says, forecasting is noisy. Reliable forecasts are made by people with a distinctive thinking style. Kahneman examines the mindset of what Philip Tetlock calls super forecasters. And would it surprise you to know that sheer intelligence isn't enough to be a super forecaster? What is essential is an active open-mindedness valuing evidence that goes against their beliefs. Super forecasters are in perpetual beta. This is how Kahneman explains it. To characterize the thinking style of super forecasters, Tedlock uses the phrase perpetual beta, a term used by computer programmers for a program that's not meant to be released in a final version, but is endlessly used, analyzed, and improved. Tedlock finds the strongest indicator of rising into the ranks of super forecasters is perpetual beta, the degree to which one is committed to belief updating and self-improvement. As he puts it, what makes them so good is less what they are than what they do. The hard work of research, the careful thought and self-criticism, the gathering and synthesizing of other perspectives, the granular judgments and relentless updating. They like a particular cycle of thinking. Try, fail, analyze, adjust, try again. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says judgments about COVID have been noisy. During the pandemic forecast for the spread of COVID, the impact of masks, lockdowns, and other measures has been consistently wrong. This is not a surprise. As Kahneman reports, most forecasts are not 
reliable. Now, Dr. Fauci, for instance, is not a super forecaster. There's little evidence that he works in perpetual beta gathering and synthesizing perspectives. On the contrary, he attacks those he disagrees with, such as the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Real leaders listen to others. They don't dominate others. And when it comes to the medical profession, we want to believe we can rely on our doctors. Many people want to believe Dr. Fauci. Yet the medical profession is especially noisy. Kahneman reports, quote, faced with the same patient, different doctors make different judgments about whether patients have skin cancer, breast cancer, heart disease, tuberculosis, pneumonia, depression, and a host of other conditions. Noise is especially high in psychiatry, where subjective judgment is obviously important. However, considerable noise is also found in areas where it might not be expected, such as in the reading of x-rays. Now, isn't reading an x-ray or biopsy an objective fact on which nearly all competent radiologists and pathologists would agree? Well, the answer is no. And Kahneman explains, In some specialties, such as radiology and pathology, doctors are well aware of the presence of noise. Radiologists, for example, call diagnostic variation their Achilles heel. Clean, simple tests of noise and sometimes error are easier to conduct in radiology. For example, you can return to slides or scans to re-evaluate a previous assessment. In medicine, between-person noise, or inter-rater reliability, is, uh, is usually measured by the kappa statistic. And the higher the kappa, the less noise. A kappa value of 1 reflects perfect agreement. A value of 0 reflects exactly as much agreement as you would expect between monkeys throwing darts onto a list of possible diagnoses. So consumers of healthware, of healthcare rather, beware. In some domains of medical diagnosis, reliability as measured by this kappa coefficient has been found to be slight or poor, which means the noise is very high. Kahneman even gives examples on the question of whether a breast lesion was cancerous. One study found only fair agreement among pathologists. In diagnosing breast proliferative lesions, agreement was again only fair. Agreement was also fair when physicians assessed MRI scans for the degree of spinal stenosis. Women of childbearing years may be diagnosed with endometriosis. In one study, 108 gynecological surgeons were asked to judge the number and location of endometriotic lesions. They disagreed dramatically with weak correlations on both number and location. And for a person diagnosed with cancer, a second or even third opinion would seem to be a necessity. Kahneman cautions whether a patient will be diagnosed with a serious disease such as cancer might depend on a kind of lottery determined by the particular doctor he or she will see. Now, Barry Brownstein goes on to to talk about how coercion blocks discovery. And he's talking about how there's official versions, there's misinformation, and, and things like treating COVID patients with ivermectin has been made very, very difficult. Yeah, there was a lot of doctors that were really in big trouble for not, again, following the orthodoxy and following the, the main narrative. But sometimes you need those second opinions. The bottom line is this. Barry Brownstein says the medical profession is noisy. We should not expect infallibility. We should not expect people to agree. But he says we should value active open-mindedness to challenge the orthodoxy and promote discovery. The history of medicine has been filled with dubious and dangerous treatments along with life-saving discoveries. 
In the 1920s, drinking water infused with radium was hailed as one of the greatest boons to ailing mankind that was ever discovered. So in matters of health, competition, and second opinions lead to better medicine. And the point here is that uh, for that to take place, you've got to have freedom to speak, freedom to question, freedom to dissent without immediately feeling like, you know, I'm going to be punished or I'm going to be burned at the stake in what uh, can, can I think accurately be described as a modern day mass psychosis. Very similar to what happened during the Salem witch trials a few hundred years back. I hope that you seriously consider those dissenting points of view, as well as the uh, orthodoxy, too. I mean, it's, it's helpful to know what they're saying. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to who is best qualified to decide what is best for you and your health. No, you may not be a medical doctor, but it's your body. It's your health. I would think that would give you the upper hand in terms of making that decision. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Brian Hyde sitting in on the Tim Alders Show. Actually, it's the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm sitting in for Tim Alders. And this is the America Out Loud Network.